Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. Here is an orientation to today's episode topic. Metabolic syndrome-related health problems such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease exist as major public health issues. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States while diabetes is recognized as the eighth most leading cause of death. The commonality of these diseases across the general population is further evidenced by the prevalence of diabetes. The CDC estimates that 37.3 million people across the adult U.S. population have diabetes, with 96 million U.S. adults meeting criteria for prediabetes. Beyond the health complications at the individual level, these conditions are an economic burden for society. For example, the CDC estimates that cardiovascular disease costs the United States about $363 billion per year. Problematically, these health problems are becoming more common across society. For example, cases of cardiovascular disease have almost doubled when comparing rates from 1990 to 2019. As such, there is a clear need to identify factors that not only contribute to risk for these health problems, but also heighten the progression and severity of these problems. A wealth of literature exists highlighting an association between shift work and increased risk for both diabetes and cardiovascular disease, among other deleterious health outcomes. One such factor that is thought to contribute to this increased risk is the constant circadian misalignment that shift workers experience. Indeed, circadian misalignment, defined as inappropriately timed sleep-wake schedules relative to one's biological circadian rhythm, has been previously associated with heightened risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as well as other metabolic syndrome-related characteristics. Additionally, highly controlled laboratory studies have shown that acute circadian misalignment contributes to a host of metabolic impairments. Yet, this relationship between acute circadian misalignment and metabolic impairments has not been previously extended to free-living environments. For today's episode, I digitally sit down with Dr. Josiane Broussard to discuss their recently published article in the journal Sleep, entitled, Impairments in Glycemic Control During Eastbound Transatlantic Travel in Healthy Adults, which aim to address this gap by examining the acute effects of circadian misalignment associated with jet lag during free-living eastbound transatlantic travel on glycemic control in healthy young men and women. Before the guest interview portion of our show, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Josiane Broussard. Dr. Josiane Broussard is a clinical and translational scientist interested in the intersection of sleep and circadian rhythms and cardiometabolic health at the whole body as well as tissue-specific level. She received her PhD in molecular metabolism and nutrition from the University of Chicago and then completed postdoctoral training with Dr. Richard Bergman in Los Angeles, California, studying the effects of diet-induced obesity on insulin sensitivity in a large animal model. In 2015, she moved to the University of Colorado Boulder for in-depth training in clinical circadian physiology with Dr. Kenneth P. Wright, Jr. 
In July of 2018, she started her independent laboratory at Colorado State University, where she studies the mechanistic underpinnings of insulin resistance due to insufficient sleep and or circadian misalignment, as well as potential countermeasures. So, without further ado, here is our guest interview with Dr. Josiane Broussard unpacking the recent publication in journal Sleep entitled Impairments in Glycemic Control During Eastbound Transatlantic Travel in Healthy Adults. I hope you enjoy. All right, listeners, and welcome to our guest interview portion of today's episode. I have the pleasure of digitally sitting down with Dr. Josiane Broussard, a.k.a. Josie. Uh, Josie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me for this interview to discuss your research. Um, Let's begin with this. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. That's wonderful to hear. A true pleasure. Uh, it looks like it's pretty sunny based on your window back there. Uh, and it, remind me, are you in Colorado? Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. The sun is Very awesome. State. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, always jealous of those that get to live in Colorado because of the amazing mountains and scenery. Uh, we have glorified hills here in Wisconsin. Um so uh, if if you can go out and hike a mountain for me, that'd be greatly appreciated. <laughs> awesome. Well, you should come visit. Uh, uh, you know, I might, and I might for a year. We'll see. I'm starting to um, piece together some clinical internship applications, and there's definitely a couple sites in Colorado that I'm interested in. So um, maybe I'll be out there more permanently. Yeah. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Please do. Colorado has a really rich sleep and circadian environment, so absolutely when you come this way, reach out and we'll connect with Dr. Wright and all the people at Boulder. Yeah, that'd be great. Will do. And they may be receiving an application from me soon. Who knows? <laughs> Stay tuned, Boulder. Uh, but we have digressed. <laughs> now, Josie, uh, I've given the listeners just a brief uh background into your biography Mm -hmm. to kind of orient to this episode. But as we've done with past guests, and uh, I just think it's enriching and uh, a perfect place to start is just having you share about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research. Oh, yeah. I love actually telling this story because, of course, entering into my field, I had no idea what I was doing. But looking back, you can kind of make it look linear, right? So um, I can, yes, I can share with you the serendipity and kind of randomness of my path. Um, but yeah, actually, my I have been in sleep research since 2002, because I, I graduated in neuroscience from Brandeis University, which is just outside of Boston. And I was really interested in clinical research, but had no real idea how to get started. I, kind, I just basically decided I would pl- apply for research assistant positions in the Longwood medical area. And one of the clinical sleep research groups I applied to was um, Janet Mullington's at Beth Israel. And she was in the neurology department and um, Beth Israel is part of Harvard Medical School. And so I really loved this idea of sleep research, but had never really heard of it before. And so that she took a chance on me. I mean, I was just out of college and really it was my very first job. So Janet Mullington was my first mentor in sleep research. And it was, you know, it was just luck that I thought, wow, this is such a cool area of research because I sleep, 
you know, everybody sleeps. I thought rather than a disease state, it was such an interesting thing to dis- to study a behavior about which we kind of don't don't know a lot. So that was my first uh, entrance. Very cool. And, um, you know, I, I must say, uh, Janet Mullington, I've had the pleasure of meeting her a couple times and it's been just remarkable every time. And uh, a couple of my like closest sleep colleagues, um, shout out Tony Cunningham and my mentor, Michael Goldstein. I think they just finished postdocs recently uh, with Dr. Mullington and, and they just raved about the experience. So I'm so um, jealous in some ways that that was your introduction into the field. But as you said, it's often serendipitous, right? Um, myself included, I just got blessed by an opportunity to get my first exposure by Dr. Richard Bootson. And we all know how much uh, impact he had on the field. Uh, and it's just so interesting to find ourselves in this kind of niche field, if you will. But it's not a distinct field. It's kind of interdisciplinary on its own, um, where we bring in so many different perspectives. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I tell my students that all the time, that they could be a cancer and sleep researcher, you know, a learning and memory sleep researcher, a microbiome and sleep. I mean, that's, I think, the best part of sleep research, sleep and circadian. I agree. I think it's also one of the hardest things to describe about being a sleep and circadian researcher because it's like I often use the word broadly, very liberally, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it extends to so many different domains. Mm-hmm. Um but, but love the story and love the use of serendipitous and so on. And um, when you're not, you know, sitting at the computer or collecting data in the lab or running your lab, whatever it may be, when you're not advancing the frontier of sleeping circadian <laughs> research, <laughs> what do you like to do in your spare time? Ooh, that's a fun one. Um, right this moment, I am a rec tennis player. So I picked up tennis um, as an adult actually in – COVID pandemic times. It, it, it was a perfect um, socially distanced activity <laughs> that was kind of still being allowed in my town. Um, yeah, so I have kind of gone down the rabbit hole. And um, in fact, sometimes I, I, I apply my data analysis um, interests from, from research onto my tennis world where I'm like scouting opponents and like looking up their rankings. Um, so yeah, I, that's what I mostly do these days in my spare time is I play a lot of tennis. Groovy. Uh, did you tune in for Wimbledon recently? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, it was, there was uh, some drama for sure and some good stuff across the board. I, I am passionate about all sports, but tennis, for one, is I haven't gotten fully um, hooked on yet. Mm-hmm. I think in the future, will my partner and I we bought tennis rackets and they're still in the wrapping. <laughs> oh no! Uh, but that was going to be <laughs> that was going to be our COVID hobby as well. Oh, funny. Uh, we just never got around to it. I ended up using the tennis balls with our dogs at home instead, oh, and I think fun. they appreciated that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so. I'm going to steal your answer, I think, or limit you on this one for this next question because you're not allowed to say professional tennis player. How about that? (laughs) But if you were were an asleep and circadian researcher, then what career would you have? So can I – I can't be a scientist or researcher in any capacity. Is that like outside of research or science? Ooh, you're twisting my arm a bit. Uh, I will I will allow you – Yeah. I will allow you to choose a different field within science. Yes, go ahead. Ooh, a different field. Okay, so I didn't even know what my answer was going to be before I asked that qualifier. Um, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to push myself to go outside of research. Well, because I always I tell my students this too that I could have 
been a researcher in any field, you know, you know, once you're going down that path, you just are really good at asking questions and being curious. So that's sort of too easy to say like a different field. So instead I'm going to say, um, uh, some kind of like mixed media artist. That's actually what I think, what, where, what I wanted to do in undergrad before my dad told me I had to get a real job. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sometimes I think, you know, a, a, an artist almost sometimes think like a set designer, like physical art, like building things. Um, yeah, I think that's what, if I had to start all over and I wasn't allowed to do science, maybe that's what I would do. Seems like a great way to channel the creativity that you bring to your science. Uh, and we'll get into the creativity of this design and um, what led you there in the first place kind of later on in the episode. But I love that. We'll say uh, mixed media artist, MMA, not the mixed martial artist that involves the fighting. <laughs> no. <laughs> More of the creative space. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I love that. And uh, a, a special question for you, Josie, um, given that I know your background a little bit since we overlapped last year on the communications committee for the Sleep Research Society. And I think this would be a good opportunity to just discuss with the kind of listeners, uh, those in the community, those outside of it, just to share about your experience on this committee, what what led you to join it, and, and kind of um, what the experience was like as a whole. Oh, sure. Well, actually, my first um, experience with SRS committees was actually the scientific review committee. I think that's maybe not the exact name, but um, that was my very first committee. I was um, helping review for the career development awards and also the abstracts for the conference each year. So that was an incredible opportunity to be able to, especially to be able to review um, career development awards as an early stage um, investigator myself. So I, I learned a lot about how people structure their applications, how they talk about their work. So that that really helped me. Um, when my tenure on that committee came to an end, I actually was automatically put on the communications committee. So for me, I was a total fish out of water because I I didn't even know how to use Twitter. <laughs> so um, I was like, why did I get put on this committee? But it was great because I learned more about how to use social media. In fact, I set up a Twitter account <laughs> because I joined the committee so that I could tweet about uh, the Sleep uh, sleep Research Society. But really, the best part is just learning about the other people on the committee. That's, I think, probably you would agree the best part of being on a committee is making um, researcher friends. And then, you know, you can kind of go visit them at their institution, learn more about their work. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's a balance, right? Because you can't say yes to every type of thing um, in the service realm that we do or are asked to do. But you know, I think being um, strategic and trying to choose the things that really interest you is a great place to build your CV, but also meet new researcher friends. I love the way you describe that because we have these jam-packed schedules as academics involved in research. And uh, we often have to take on obligations such as peer review where there really isn't any tangible compensation. Yes, we can leverage this altruistic nature of science and wanting to be the gatekeepers and so on and so forth. But um, more and more as I become, I wouldn't say senior, but more trained and advanced in this field and, and situated, 
these offers start to emerge, whether joining committees in, in various professional organizations, you have to ask yourself, like, do I have the time? Do I have the bandwidth? And what sort of toll is this going to take? And I found from my experience that it's been more than um, enriching just being on these, com- these committees, whether it's on the Trainee Education Advisory Committee or the Communications Committee, because as you said, those relationships you establish. And uh, we had our kind of kickoff for the Communications Committee yesterday, uh, our monthly meeting for this this new calendar year, if you will, of the 2022 to 2023. And that brought on some new people with some new introductions. And, and I was just taking some notes because you never know whose path you're going to cross. You never know, is there a collaboration potential? So this is just a shameless plug uh, to for, for the SRS uh, committees and to all those members out there, uh, trainees, more advanced, uh, early career investigators, whatever it may be, try and get involved. Uh, you never know what sort of opportunities can emerge from these relationships, whether it's applying for postdocs, whether it's looking for uh, faculty positions later on. Uh, this stuff is extremely valuable. So I wholeheartedly agree that it. Uh, at first I had kind of mixed feelings about adding something else to my calendar. But over time, it's become the things I look forward to the most on my calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so good on you for that. Um, and we do miss you. I will say, as I informed the committee that you were, uh, accepted the invitation as a guest, there was a lot of uh, excitement, but also just uh, um, some sadness, again, over the departure because your tenure had recently closed as well. Um, and I think this next segment, as we, we play a little game with all of our guests, uh, is a nice way to transition into the actual science for today. Uh, So we're going to play a little keyword association. Um, Spinning off of word association, I'm just going to say some words. Some of these are actually your keywords from the manuscript. Okay, And some of them are not. Uh Uh-oh, I'm scared. But uh, (laughs) totally blinded. This time around, I didn't even give the participant any or the guest any thoughts onto what might emerge. So again, hot off the cognitive press here with Josie. Uh, Are you ready? Yes. All right. Famous last words. (laughs) All right. But now the... Those were the famous last words, and these are now the first words that come to mind. When I say circadian health, what comes to mind? Mm, Sunlight. Love it. Jet lag. Mm, Sleep disruption. So true. Metabolic health. Uh, Glucose. (laughs) (laughs) Circadian disruption. Mm, Lipids. (laughs) This is fun. We could do this for the whole episode. I know, I'm like, oh, uh, is he going to get really crazy with some of them? And final one here, glycemic control. Tennis. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, glycemic control. Oh, uh, CGM. I don't know why I'm like so into CGM these days. That's continuous glucose monitoring. Yes, it is. And it's a key element of the methodology of today's investigation. So that wraps up the keyword association <laughs> to stay in the tennis theme. I appreciate <laughs> Uh, the volley that we just had back and forth. Oh, good one. (laughs) Uh, And I think we'll transition to our, I can never get these right, next match, next game, (laughs) not next set. I'd never get these right. Any of those, probably, yeah. (laughs) All right, all of the above. Uh, But that's the keyword association. And now we're going to transition to the actual article of focus today. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be focusing on a recent article you published entitled Impairments in Glycemic Control During Eastbound Transatlantic Travel in Healthy Adults. Uh, So listeners out there, first 
For the next, you know, five or so minutes, we're going to take kind of a 10,000 foot view of the investigation and then we'll dive deeper into the weeds of the methodology. And as always, you can use the timestamps in the episode to navigate to the various places or if you just want to re-listen to our volley back and forth for the orientation, uh, I don't necessarily encourage that, but uh, I understand if you choose to do that as well. Uh, so, Josie, without further ado, um, what actually fueled you to perform this research? And, um, you know, what was the overall purpose of the investigations? Any particular hypotheses that led you to this investigation? Yeah, so this paper, it's it's funny and interesting to talk about because this paper is really outside of my wheelhouse. Um, So historically speaking, uh, my lab really focuses on highly controlled inpatient studies. All of my past work has really focused on that. And so what really fueled this research um, was my own personal interest in um, travel like my own health during travel. So it's kind of a project that I would call, and I sometimes used to call this during my postdoc night science, which is the cool idea you have when you're doing an overnight shift that really you don't expect to to lead to anything except your own, you know, following your own curiosity. So funnily enough, that's how this project started. We were prepping for this highly controlled inpatient you know, R01 funded study. So we were working on the CGMs. So that stands for continuous glucose monitoring. So I'll just call them CGMs for short. But they're those little devices that get placed just under the skin and measure interstitial glucose levels. So because we were so interested in using these new to us devices, we started wearing them all the time. So I wore them to go to European conferences. Um, I started wondering, you know, what what would happen to my own glucose levels as I was traveling. And so then that sort of triggered this idea that we would just place the sensors on people we knew that were traveling, that kind of broadly fit our inclusion criteria that were uh, traveling to Europe. So that's kind of the impetus for the study. Very different, I would say, than my typical work. The term night uh, science is awesome. I love it because there there always are these like, in my brain, sometimes too many thoughts that flirt around with it. But often those are the like most um, fulfilling, Mm -hmm. right? And lead to these like unexplored areas of science that are are critically important to tease apart. And so I love that this is kind of a personal um, investigation as well in many ways or your own personal inquiries led to this investigation. I think that's always a fun spin. Uh, And I just think back to some of the projects that I've done and I I think they've emerged in a very similar fashion. And um, yeah, these these, uh, CGMs, the continuous glucose monitors, uh, they've really picked up a lot of um, attention and recognition and accessibility, I think, Mm -hmm. over the last kind of five years or so. And just for my own interest in kind of health and wellness in general, I've been very interested in trying them out. Mm-hmm. So before we go deeper into the methodology itself, what have you, what's been your experience with wearing a CGM? Have, is it painful to apply? Is it, um, you know, is it uh, invasive? How would you describe it? Oh, it's so easy, actually. So much easier than we expected. Um, our undergraduate research assistants, if trained, um, can place them on participants. So it really... I think that opens the door to a lot of really interesting research to people who 
maybe aren't associated with a medical facility or don't have, um, you know, an MD of record, depending on their IRB and the approvals needed, um, you know, we we say that trained staff will place them and, um, you know, that can then encompass a lot of different um, people. So, yeah, I mean, it's really 99% of the time really painless, almost completely without pain or sensation to place the CGM. Um, so that has helped a lot. People, we've even used it as a backup, you know, if people, if we lose our IV in the middle of the study, we say, well, at least we can get some insight into glucose levels from the CGM. So yeah, it has been um, surprisingly easy to implement and it does not set off the alarms at the airport. That was the first question when we were wearing them through travel is, you know, are they going to alarm, um, you know, the sensors at the airport. It's funny you bring that up because that was a question that came to mind when I was thinking about this design and, and how that was going to happen. So that's great to hear because obviously this provides a really important piece of information for people, not just in a diseased population, but in our general population. You know, as we're all getting more interested in in kind of uh, inter-individual differences, how we respond to different foods as people are tinkering and, and trying to dial in a more optimal lifestyle, we can get this real-time feedback. You know, when Jesse eats a banana or Jesse, you know, goes for a run and then eats ice cream, how are these things affecting him? And to have that information accessible and in a manner that isn't going to be uh, hazardous to anybody and can just exist in day-to-day -day life is fantastic. Are you able to continue to wear them during kind of physical activity? Yes, um, we definitely, you can put place a little bit of a tegaderm or any kind of, you know, plastic covering over it um, to be able to do everything. I mean, even showering should be totally fine swimming. So yeah, I definitely exercised with it on. Um, some The ones we use should be able to record for 14 days straight and they're giving um, a measure every 15 minutes. So really granular view of things. And I even, as a recruitment tactic for undergrad students in the lab, I, um, I gave a little presentation to a research class from which I was trying to recruit, you know, um, lab members. And I basically, I wore the CGM for a week and every day eight at the same time, you, you know, under the same kind of behavioral conditions, ate a different item and then used that as kind of a guessing game from to the audience of like, what spiked Josie's glucose more? And um, that was a really fun way to kind of show them, you know, that just what you said, you can kind of understand things like fundamental biological things about yourself with some of these wearables. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, see the patterns of behavior that help you to your life goals the best. Uh, and that's something my partner and I, we discuss a lot is that we've adopted kind of the intermittent fasting or time restricted eating schedules. But for me, I respond better with more of a delayed uh, 10 a.m. breaking of the fast in my 12 hour window. And she's more of the operating better at starting her day with food and ending it sooner. And we all kind of differ on that front. And these types of uh, feedback, information, albeit there's still, of course, error in any sort of measurement, and we have to consider that, but it provides us information that's, uh, I think, I don't, I wouldn't say more important, I want to say more supplementary to kind of the interoception, the internal experience, and taking the objective and the subjective, putting them together, 
is going to lead us to putting the puzzle together the best. Um, so I love that we are now getting access to this information. And, you know, cat's out of the bag a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about going through an airport. All right. Uh, so, and we use some continuous glucose monitors. Um, so when thinking about the investigation specifically, what was the design that was employed to kind of assess uh, the transatlantic travel effects? Well, um, like I mentioned, it was really a, kind of a free living observational study. So like I said, very different from when most of my studies where participants come into the lab and we control every aspect of their life for seven days um, with timing of eating and uh, sleeping and exercise, everything. Um, this was a completely opposite design. So we placed the CGMs on participants. We collected information about their habitual sleep time when they were on um, mountain time. So they're all people who originated in Denver. And then, you know, we did not ask them to change their behavior in any way. They they had no idea, you know, what exactly we were interested in aside from, you know, glucose. And then they went about their trip. So they all... Um, traveled, I think the average travel duration was about seven days, um, during which time we had them wear the CGM. Did you, from a recruitment standpoint, just send out like, are you located in the, you know, Fort Collins area and, uh, are you traveling, uh, transatlantic anytime soon? Was that kind of the recruitment yeah. flyer that went out? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, perfect. I was because that was the only thing that I, I didn't fully understand is who were these people, right? Um, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's I, I was wondering if you just had people at the ready who were traveling transatlantically. That was just a convenient sample, but you know, you actually recruited individuals that had this upcoming. Mm-hmm. So very cool there, and um, you you assess them kind of longitudinally over their duration of their travel. Uh, and what were you? What kind of outcome measures were you particularly interested in? We were interested in it, uh, any any type of outcome measure related to glycemic control or variability. So we looked at um, interstitial glucose levels. You know, we we kind of tease it apart in different ways. We we looked at um, you know uh, clinical guidelines for cutoffs for hyperglycemia, and interestingly, we found because we were studying pretty healthy people most of them were not going over those kind of predetermined clinical limits. So um, looking into the literature, we found some um, historical data analysis where people set an individually determined um, hyperglycemia. So in fact, you know, for healthy people, if we're not going to, if we're not getting over that clinically defined number, what might actually be more clinically relevant, just like we were saying, kind of for us, the individual. Um, So we were able to define some things like that. um, And then looking at um, variability throughout the course of the trip as well. Very cool. And I I must draw attention uh, because I started when I went through it. I I love the individualized, personalized hyperglycemia index. I thought that was a a really... uh, creative and important way to kind of change that variable. Cause I, I struggle with whatever our normal thresholds within normal limits, um, severity thresholds we often utilize in any domain or field. Obviously we need these, but what do they truly mean at the individual level? Right. right? And so I love that you were not, uh, rigidly devout or bound to that, but rather tried to look at this in a more meaningful manner through the individual lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was great. And, um, I thought it was just a nice way to look at all the 
kind of ways to tease apart glycemic control. I thought you did a very nice job there. And in general, what did you find uh, across the investigation? So we, I mean, you asked kind of what was our hypothesis and we, we, this again, you know, we didn't go in with a really strong hypothesis aside from, you know, that glucose, we'd see some elevations in glucose, right. Or, um, as we, would have expected if it was consistent with kind of our controlled inpatient studies of circadian misalignment. And so we, but that is exactly what we found. We found that glucose levels were kind of progressively got worse as the trip went on. Um, I would say we, we maybe did expect to see some resolution of that as the trip went on, which we really didn't. We just saw this kind of linear trend that continued over the course of the travel. Yeah, and uh, that to me was an interesting thing because I also assumed that there would maybe be a plateau maybe four or five days in when there's a better adjustment and we'll probably get to circadian adjustment here, the the internal clock um, and how we might be able to uh, develop countermeasures or strategies to navigate these scenarios. But it was fascinating. It did seem to be just a linear progression um, and it seemed to be most salient in mean glucose values across not just the tw- not just the daytime but across 24 hour periods and not necessarily connected to peak glucose if i remember correctly um but that was that was very interesting because i definitely thought maybe a spike and then kind of a, a subtle decline or decay um based on the disruption but that's not what you found and i thought that was very very interesting um all right so why don't we go a little bit uh, deeper into the weeds here uh Naturally, with any study, and, and you kind of already addressed the fact that this is more free living rather than tightly controlled, and we're obviously going to have strengths and limitations to uh, both of those approaches. Um, I just wanted to kind of broadly ask to get us started, uh, what sort of design challenges did you face? And uh, for my lens, uh, why was the day of travel kind of excluded from the analyses? Oh, good questions. And I would say basically this for the same reasons, um, your two questions almost have the same answer. So the biggest challenge was um, really not knowing the feeding behavior on the trip um, or, or the sleep, really. I mean, we, again, we, because this was a very kind of limited scope study, we weren't collecting um measures while they traveled um, on eating, timing of eating, you know, content of meals or sleep timing. And so that's really the same reason we excluded the day one of travel. And that was, if you, you know, think about yourself kind of on the plane ride and um, maybe having random food here and there, but also very limited sleep opportunities. um, We just, decided there was just much too much variability on that travel day. Um, but yeah, but really the biggest limitation was not knowing the food. And we, you know, we really dive into that in, um, in the limitations section of this paper because everyone is eating differently when they're traveling. It's almost, you know, unavoidable. And so that really is like kind of the biggest caveat and limitation with this. Um, the, the one thing we did, think about though with that is that if if you were eating really differently right when you got there we thought maybe again we would see that peak in glucose that maybe then resolved um but the sort of continued um worsening you know you know maybe speaks to them you know um not eating 
worse every day, <laughs> but we don't know. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And and yeah, that's obviously when somebody reads this paper, they're going to wonder about, you know, the behaviors that are also likely to affect glycemic stability and control, things like exercise, uh-huh. the not just quality or types of foods we're eating, but the timing of them, uh-huh. our sleep quality, duration, all those types of factors. Um, and I'm sure in the future, you have aspirations to build on this one with a more comprehensive analysis that can maybe control for those variables, at least capture them Mm -hmm. to include in regression models or whatever it may be to account for differences and see um, kind of an isolated effect of the actual circadian disruption associated with transatlantic travel. Um, Yeah. If you were to... No, I was just wanted to kind of um, jump in right there to say maybe, but maybe not. You know, we, we do our inpatient controlled studies to try to, you know, more focus on, you know, one changing variable. But this, um, the important part of this work was that we almost, it doesn't matter kind of what's driving it. It's this transatlantic travel that's clearly associated with this worsening. So, you know, in one case, I would love to understand what's driving it. But at the same time, um, the effect is there regardless of what's actually causing it. So that's sort of what we also, you know, thought deeply about is what does this mean for um, people who do constantly travel or, you know, um, are, are, you know, repeatedly circadian misaligned? Do we need to tease that apart is sort of what I'm kind of getting at. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and I, I hear you on that front because we've already seen in the laboratory that the disruption itself right. uh, leads to metabolic impairments. So we don't necessarily need to extend that to the free living environment. I guess more so when thinking about like developing effective strategies to help people um, handle these uh, travels, mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, identifying in a hierarchical fashion, mm-hmm. which factors uh, contribute most principally. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you think we would go about doing that? Mm. Sorry to put you on the spot there. No, I mean, it's a great question because, I mean, that's really what a lot of my inpatient controlled clinical studies are looking at now. You know, can we, during circadian misalignment, can we manipulate the timing of food intake to mitigate or attenuate some of these impairments. Um, so I think, you know, the, the initial work to answer that question is, has started, um, but then it'll be really the, the, the step coming after that, like, can we translate this into free living setting? Um, you know, in, in the case of jet lag or transatlantic travel, you know, can we, um, as a very first step, limit food to the origin time, you know, the biological daytime at the time zone of origin, can that be something at least we could test that? That could certainly be a next step now that we know, you know, what we know from this paper. Um, That might be an easier first step rather than, you know, getting into sleep quality. You know, this is like the ongoing debate is kind of what's driving things more. Um, And can we really tease that apart? Does that matter? Yeah, and I, I think we probably share based on just kind of the themes I'm picking up from you that it's it's going to be I wouldn't even use the word challenging, but in some ways impossible and probably unnecessary to view these as distinct and rather see them as kind of the an intersection synergistic um, 
relationships, if you will. And I just think when we were thinking about like transatlantic travel and frequent circadian disruption, probably the element of behavior that we have most control over is the type and timing of our food intake. Uh, And that may be kind of the most low hanging fruit, no pun intended, if we're trying to have actionable and accessible strategies to intervene here. It's really hard to get quality exercise in an airport or on an airplane. And certainly when you land, there's good advice about using physical activity to better adjust and acclimate to your environment. But even still, that may be something that's uh, less less approachable by individuals, especially in a disease population. Uh, so I think that one is uh, very uh, fruitful to explore on that front and also one that uh, can be implemented on a, on a wide variety of characteristics. Um, and I'm glad that you're pushing that forward um, because this clearly, it kind of shocked me, has, has wide implications, whether it comes to professional individuals flying a lot, you know, pilots. Uh, I was even thinking if we want to go back to the tennis team, Uh, athletes and the frequent disruption that they experience and how this can lead them vulnerable to not just acute performance deficits, but long-term health outcomes, risk for injury, things like that as well. Um, So a lot of great implications here. Now, in the design, you are only able to assess for uh, relationships related to eastward travel. Was this largely due to the uh, battery life of the CGM? Was that like a limitation there, not being able to see them come back? Oh, um. We, we were able to see some of them come back, but because that wasn't um, part of the design, we only had, it sort of depended when we saw them come into the lab and when we got the sensor. Um, we had told people that once they got back, they could remove the sensor. Some of them, we, some of the participants had us remove them when they came in. So we just didn't have enough data to really, um, you know, make any um, insightful, you know, uh, findings with that. Makes sense. And and I kind of, as I've thought more about this question in my brain, I almost feel it. it's kind of a stupid question because it's circadian disruption in every direction is probably going to have an effect. But <laughs> do you anticipate that uh, westward travel would have the same effects as eastward travel or would there be some differences here? No. And that would be such an interesting next step because um, – you know, everyone, we always think of westward travel being easier to adapt to, you know, that phase delay and you're able to sleep better. Um, but at the same time, when we did the um, thought experiment that led to this figure two in the paper, kind of this hypothetical, um, you know, what's going on in the body, if we do that in the westward direction, it actually would place potential food timing earlier in the day. So, Actually, that would be the hypothesis. So now if we did that study, we'd actually have a, have a hypothesis would be that it would be um, less, less worse glucose. I mean, still maybe some disruptions, but if we think that the um, food timing is really the primary driver, then we might hypothesize that we'd see less of an impairment going in that direction. But again, back to, you know, sleep might be improved or at least, uh, I don't mean improved compared to home destination, but better than east, you know, eastbound travel, better than the phase advance. So again, it's, it'll always be together. From your expertise, uh, how long lasting would these effects be? Like if Jesse uh, traveled today to Europe, mm-hmm. had the disruption for four five, six days, traveled back and went and saw his primary care provider, say, two, three days later, um, would there still be lasting effects from this travel on my glucose level 
And should I probably not schedule uh, <laughs> my yearly checkup following transatlantic travel? Ooh, good question. I mean, definitely to answer the last question first, I think correct. You probably wouldn't want to do uh, your your physical right after travel for a lot of reasons. You know, maybe if you ate poorly, your weight is a little bit increased, your blood pressure, all the things that we didn't measure um, from this study. Um, so yeah, but more the more fundamental aspect of your question as far as like when would you recover? I think you know, we don't know. I mean, obviously you would get, at some point you will recover, right? If you, for example, stay at the new time zone for a long period of time. Um, and we cite in the paper, you know, this um, this idea that it takes approximately one hour um, per day to shift. Or I mean, you, sorry, I should say that we biologically, we can shift the central clock by approximately an hour a day. So if you're, you know, if Europe is seven hours time zone difference, then you might hypothesize that certain parts of the circadian clock would be back to kind of time zone of destination by seven days. Um, I think there's probably a lot of individual differences there, probably depends on your own individual circadian period of the central clock. Um, But again, what does that mean for all of the other rhythms in the body and peripheral tissues? You know, I don't think we, we know. Yeah. Uh, in this design, every person started in Colorado and traveled to Europe and I think landed in the same time zone uh, in Europe, if I remember correctly, or, or close to it. So probably somewhere between like a seven to nine hour adjustment mm-hmm. uh, or disruption, if you had advancement, if you will, mm-hmm. in their circadian, in their chronological clock time versus um, biological clock time. Um, do you think there would be kind of a dose response effect based on number of time zones change? Like, would we see an effect in just uh, transcontinental travel in the US? Mm-hmm. Um, or would that be kind of muted based on it being only a three hour change? Or would you kind of expect kind of like a either a linear or kind of a step progression? Mm-hmm. If we traveled 14 hour differences, would we see a bigger magnitude effect? What would you kind of hypothesize there? Yeah, I think that the the bigger the shift, probably the bigger the magnitude of the effect. Um, you know, with within you know continental travel, then I would equate it a little bit more to social jet lag um, and kind of your change over the weekend. Like if you're in your if you didn't travel at all, you're kind of imposing that social jet lag. Um, so I would say. Yeah, you would probably still see, I mean, that's what a lot of the research suggests is that the social jet lag is certainly um, playing a role in impairing health outcomes. Um, But yeah, maybe not to the extent of, you know, a seven hour shift. Yeah, and obviously a lot of that social jet lag brings in the confounding variables of behaviors that are occurring later at night, whether it's social drinking Mm -hmm. or late night uh, eating habits that are not necessarily beneficial for uh, acute or long-term health as well, or circadian health. Um, we touched upon the fact earlier that these are healthy individuals. I think maybe seven or eight individuals, eight, I believe, or so. Um, and uh, I was wondering, kind of thinking about this in the context of a diseased population, do you think you would see, do you think that would have moderating effects on the relationships you observed? Yeah, that's such a good question because, you know, there's such so much less research into, um, you know, 
controlled acute sleep and circadian disruption in people with pre-existing health impairments. So we think about that a lot in the lab and kind of what does that mean? Could they be more vulnerable because they're already kind of at an impaired state or is there a ceiling effect? They can't get more impaired. So that's certainly, you know, I could hypothesize either direction. Um, But I would say that I think the variability is then really important with people who are already impaired. You know, are they going to have a harder time controlling their blood glucose when they do transatlantic travel? You know, somebody who has already um, type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes and they're giving themselves insulin, you know, are they going to have a harder time controlling that when they are circadian misaligned? I think that's a really open area for research. Um, I do, I'll just say anecdotally, people tell me that that's the case. Um, People with metabolic impairments will say, oh yeah, I find it, my blood sugar is totally hard to control if I'm, you know, traveling um, or if I don't sleep the right amount, things like that. Yeah, travel disrupts us quite a bit on so many levels, Mm -hmm. internally, externally, all of the above. And uh, I love that you can kind of see it from both sides and that shows your... uh, the comprehensive way in which you, you view science. And, and I appreciate that quite a bit. Um, beyond thinking about disease in general and healthy, whatever those terms really are, I mean, those are complicated terms in their own right. But do you think we're going to see differential effects on the individual level when it comes to age, sex, mm. uh, race or ethnicity, things like that on the relationships that you uh, unearthed in this investigation? Oh, definitely. I think, I mean, I think at this point, you can't deny that sex is a really important biological variable that probably has implications for everything we study. Um, Unfortunately, it then becomes more of a power issue to be able to determine those, those changes. So yes, I think everything is probably really important um, of all of those things that you said, um, you know, what are the next steps for really teasing that apart? I think that's another kind of future next frontier of research for sure. Well, maybe we can leverage world sleep uh, next time around and get all the researchers to get some CGMs and uh, start collecting some data on this. I love it. Um, we'll do it. We'll just ship it out. The only bummer is you also need the reader to to initialize the sensor. So, but you're right. We could send it. We could send every single uh, researcher that. Of course, all the sleep researchers, the really big confounder is everybody's sort of partying at the conference. <laughs> what are you talking about? I have no <laughs> yeah. idea what oh, you're talking I mean... about. I maintain my habitual uh, habits that are built around a life of wellness. Of uh, <laughs> and I do not. Yep. I go to bed at nine every night. No. Um, yes. Uh, Shout out to the sleep conferences. They're a lot of fun (laughs) and we do learn it as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you brought up a good point about kind of a ceiling effect potentially in in a diseased population, right? Those experiencing some of these metabolic um, issues. And it kind of got my brain thinking about, can we get, can we adapt to uh, constant circadian disruption so that the effects are not as pronounced? Mm -hmm. Would frequent travelers over those who never have taken a transatlantic trip, uh, be less susceptible to the negative effects relative to those that it's their first trip and they rarely go under circadian disruption? Yeah, well, I think it depends on the outcome you're interested in. So 
but and usually I don't take like a hard line stance on many things, you know, like you said, I can see both sides. But on this, I have to say, absolutely not, you're not going to have adaptation. And the reason I say that is because shift workers are at a much higher risk for diseases, right? So that suggests that they don't ever eventually adapt to this chronic and recurring circadian misalignment. What when I mentioned kind of depends on the outcome, I think subjectively, they might quote unquote, adapt. And so they might subjectively not feel as bad once they're doing these things repeatedly. So in that sense, maybe someone who has never done you know, or hasn't doesn't do a lot of frequent travel might subjectively feel worse on the trip. Um, but as far as health outcomes, I don't think, I don't personally think that they would be like more susceptible to someone that does it a lot. Makes sense. And yeah, using shift work as kind of a lens there, I think makes a lot of sense as well. And um, yeah, I, I just I I just think there's a misperception sometimes among uh, even scientists and researchers, but definitely in the general population that we can build resiliency uh, to circadian disruption. And I'm, I'm not necessarily seeing it. I've grown more into the sleep and athletic performance space. Uh, and some of the people I've talked to have discussed how they've view that their athletes are getting more resilient to it. Uh, but as you pointed out, maybe that is just the psychological experience and not necessarily captured by biological measures. Um, and more or less, we need to prioritize circadian health. And to close down things today, I know we've covered a lot of bases. We've talked a lot of um, kind of tangentially about different directions where research can go and things like that. Uh, to close down the manuscript, I was just kind of thinking, you know, is there any uh, findings from this investigation that we haven't talked about that have led you to think about uh, next steps, future directions, either in your laboratory or, you know, to plug for the field where you think this line of research should go? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I would say more kind of big picture things that we have taken from this line of research is this idea that we can meet free living research with our inpatient methodology and kind of that there might exist this new space where we can um, leverage our experience being this, you know, highly controlled inpatient lab and kind of bring some of that methodology to some of these free living studies, which are maybe, you know, more relevant to more people. Um, so that's what I would say. And since that project, we have and submitted um, a couple of projects that will actually take some of our interventions into real world settings, but with this layer of, you know, granularity as far as assessments and control and maybe do this outpatient um, interventions, but then have people come in for kind of some highly controlled assessments in the lab. But again, I think that that intersection of the two ways of thinking is is a really important next step for sleep and circadian research. Brilliant. And uh, your response actually triggered another question. So to steal a phrase from one of my favorite podcasts, last, last question here. Um, as far as strategies um, to kind of countermeasures that we might be thinking about implementing, obviously, there's not necessarily a empirically defined evidence-based approach yet. But it seems like we're getting to potential tools, 
um, related to meal timing, you know, uh, healthy sleep leading in, maybe some adjustment in sleep schedules going into it, uh, types of food, physical activity. We're kind of now, I think, talking about two domains, either kind of perspective preventative approaches and kind of reactive approaches uh, kind of post-talk after the disruption. Uh, Which do you think would be most effective or is it kind of the combination of the two that you think will eventually unfold as kind of the strategies that are rolled out? Yeah, I mean, I think both approaches are really important. Um, And I think both approaches are happening now. Um, You know, this kind of catching shift workers as they go into their first year, you know, I saw some really interesting stuff at the sleep research meeting about that. Um, But then I think it's super important, you know, there's obviously a lot of existing shift workers or people who, you know, have been sleep disrupted for a long time. And it's important to see if we can intervene. Like it's not too late, hopefully, you know, that's the, that would be my reasoning for kind of doing both those types of research. Beautiful. And uh, before I let you go, I first want to just thank you again for taking time and having this very, uh, what I found enjoyable conversation. I hope others did as well. And of course, educational as always. Um, Do you have any uh, social media or lab pages, things like that they would like to plug for uh, the listeners to come either ask you follow-up questions or contact you about research, things like that? Sure. Um, you know, it's funny is because I'm not a tweeter. I don't even know off the top of my head the, the name, but um, if you want to put that kind of on the website where the podcast gets placed, that might be helpful. Can you hear the Perfect. Um, lawnmower? Uh, no, oh, actually. Yes. Okay, oh. good. That's good to know. Because I'm like, it's stressing <laughs> me out, but. Hopefully it's the, the quality audio and not my hearing going early <laughs> in life. Uh, but final question here. Uh, if you were afforded unlimited funding, mm-hmm. you know, money was not an option or not an issue, design was not an issue, what singular sleep and circadian research topic would you investigate? Oh my gosh. I Luckily, I knew that, well, not even luckily, because it didn't even matter that I knew that question in advance because I am both almost like have a blank mind, like I don't even know, slash a million ideas and all the night science I could ever hope to do. Um, so I think, again, sort of depends, you know, would I, would I do work that I think could teach us so much about fundamental biology or have the most impact, you know what I mean? So I always ask myself, like, how could I have a bigger impact, you know, and I think going to like Google and doing some of their nudge studies, like at their place, you know, would really have an impact because they would be newsworthy and things like that. So that would maybe be one of my ideas would be take funds to, um, you know, do sleep and circadian intervention studies at big well-known companies that would then propagate to, you know, media and the world to show the importance of sleep and circadian health. Um, you know, more back back the other direction on the fundamental biology question. I'm really interested in this idea of like circadian amplitude being linked to health outcomes. And so I have a lot of um, night science wishes to enhance circadian amplitude, both at like the molecular clock level, for example, in like muscle tissues or peripheral um, tissues. And then, you know, 
enhancing sleep, like creating super sleep. That's always kind of one of my dreams. Um, you know, can we increase slow wave sleep and in people who are older who lose slow wave sleep, right? Could we enhance slow wave sleep and see, you know, improved health outcomes? So a ramble <laughs> to the response. <laughs> I love it. And my brain uh, just went on a uh, down a rabbit hole, but I don't think the listeners have another 30 <laughs> minutes in them to unpack playing hand of God on slow wave sleep. But I love all those lines and I, I appreciate the dedication to taking things at the indiv- individual level and deciding to want to scale that up as best you can to the population level. I think that is what we share a lot of times in this research field is, is trying to improve the life from sleep and circadian health at the population level. And clearly you have that passion. So thank you for that. And again, thank you, Josie, Dr. Josie and Broussard uh, for taking the time out of day to talk with me. I look forward to a future manuscript uh, submission entitled Transatlantic Travel Affects Glycemic Control in Professional Tennis Players <laughs> uh, with your first author. Um, so get working on that now. I'll let you go. Um, awesome. Thank you again, Josie, and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Jesse. This was really fun. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.